Good morning, Icon. He is risen. And I'm going to assume you said he is risen indeed to your television. Uh, today is Easter Sunday, and we are here to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, our Savior, our Messiah, the one and only true Son of God. This is the most important day in our planet's history. Uh, British theologian N.T. Wright says it this way, How can you cope with the end of a world and the beginning of another one? How can you put an earthquake into a test tube or the sea into a bottle? How can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself came to life and walked in our midst? Those are the stakes on this resurrection day, that God himself came to our earth, lived here among us, died on our behalf, and then was raised, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And now, here's the big idea. Even if you don't believe that, today is still the most important day in our planet's history. Historian H.G. Wells explains, saying, A historian like myself, who doesn't even call himself a Christian, finds the picture centering irresistibly around the life and character of this most significant man. The historian's test of an individual's greatness is, what did he leave to grow? Did he start men to think along fresh lines with a vigor that persisted after him? By this test, Jesus stands first. So what did Jesus do? Well, from this day in history, this original resurrection day, 300 years later, Christianity was the religion of the Holy Roman Empire. In 300 years, it went from 11 scared disciples locking themselves into a room to the official religion of the Holy Roman Empire. A thousand years after his resurrection, Christianity had laid the foundation for most of European culture. And now, 2,000 years later, Christianity is the most diverse religious movement in history, today larger than it has ever been before and in more places than it has ever been before. Time itself is told in reference to the life of Jesus, BC meaning before Christ, and AD meaning Anno Domini in the Latin meaning in the year of our Lord. More songs, paintings, poems, books, and art have been made for and about Jesus than anyone else in history. Jesus was uneducated and never wrote anything, and yet his movement has given us Yale, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, and countless others. It was Christianity's belief in a knowable and rational God that laid the foundation for modern science. And it was Christians in search of greater knowledge of their God who invented the scientific method. The phrase upon which the modern understanding of human rights was built, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That phrase is built on the teachings of Jesus. Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan, yes, Pelikan, wrote this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible, 
with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? So today, Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day, is the most important day in the history of our planet. So at the end of this message, I am going to give every single one of you a chance to respond. Christian, atheist, agnostic, apathetic, doesn't matter. Everyone has to take this day seriously. Everyone has to take the resurrection seriously. You cannot be intellectually honest and not deal seriously with Jesus' claim of divinity and his demonstration of power in the resurrection. So, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to turn to John chapter 20, John's Gospels telling of the resurrection story. And we're going to see how it's not just Christians who believe, and it's not just Christians that hope, and it's not just atheists or agnostics who doubt. The fact is, everyone believes, everyone hopes, and everyone doubts. So, let's pray, and then we'll turn to John chapter 20. Jesus, we are here for you on this day. We are here to celebrate your demonstration of love and power in your death and in your resurrection, that you were victorious over Satan, sin, and death. We celebrate that day. God, reveal to our hearts in a way that moves us to faith the truth about your resurrection. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Now, let's turn to John chapter 20. It says this in verse one. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, let me stop here for a second because I just love a moment like this, right? So it says that Mary saw that the stone was rolled away and that Jesus' body was gone. She runs back to tell the disciples, tells Peter, and then the disciple whom Jesus loved is always a reference to John, the writer of this gospel. So John's writing the story and says that this disciple whom Jesus loved and Peter started running to the tomb, but then it says both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That's John telling us for now and all eternity that he's faster than Peter, right? Like John definitely ran track in high school and is never going to let it go, right? So keep going. Verse six, then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb and stooping to look in. He saw the linens lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, don't forget, John's faster, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, what's remarkable about this story is a number of things, but what I want us to pay attention to is this. John, who has called himself the disciple whom Jesus loved, had this pretty intimate friendship relationship with Jesus, had spent years and years traveling with him at his side, was part of Jesus's inner circle, 
tells his own story in such a way that says, it was actually the moment that I looked into the tomb and saw that it was empty that I believed. Because he says, he goes, that's the moment that I believed. That's the moment it all clicked into place for John. He believed that what he saw made sense of everything else that he had known. I, I, I can imagine, like, in a flash, everything that Jesus had said, everything that Jesus had done, every moment of John's life just all kind of clicked into place. And he went, it's true. It's real. He's gone. He was actually raised from the dead. And John's conversion is actually this kind of perfect picture of Christian conversion, right? He, he wasn't converted. He didn't believe in spite of everything else. It's not like this was conflicting evidence from everything else he knew, and it kind of forced him to believe in some way. And, and, it, and it wasn't like the product of some social conditioning that everything in his life kind of made him want to believe. Man, his faith in Christ came at great personal cost as the rest of his life demonstrated. No, this moment actually was a, a moment where he was able to look through it and see that the rest of reality made sense because of this moment. In fact, poet Ralph Waldo Emerson says something similar. He says, all I have seen teaches me to trust the creator for all I have not seen. And, and I would say that's, that's why I believe. Right? I, I look at Jesus' story, his message, and the overall message of the gospel and, and would say, like, it makes the best sense of the world to me. It's why I believe, because I see it and I see the rest of the world around me, all of my reality and all of my experience through the lens of the gospel, and it all makes sense. Now, you may say, that's great. You believe. Great for you. I don't believe. And I would agree, you, maybe you don't believe and you don't believe this, but you do believe, right? Like we all believe something, whether you're an atheist or you're agnostic or whatever you are, everyone believes certain things that we can't necessarily prove, right? So you believe in human dignity, human rights, but Richard Dawkins, who is one of the most famous uh, atheists today, the, one of the four horsemen of the atheist apocalypse says this, he says, how do I know there are such things as human rights? I don't. I don't know that there are such things. Our grounding for human rights is about as tenuous as our position as primate species on a rather dodgy planet. So we believe in human rights. Certainly, Richard Dawkins would advocate for human rights. And yet, we can't prove it. And it actually doesn't flow from an atheistic worldview. Okay, so we believe in good and evil. We believe that there are some things we ought to do and some things we ought not to do. And yet, Christopher Hitchens sees a universe that has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So Dawkins, Hitchens, honest atheists, smart guys who have consistent worldviews are, are saying, listen, these things that we believe can't really prove. And they, and they don't really flow naturally out of these larger things that we say we believe. So we believe things even though we can't prove them. We believe things even though maybe they don't even flow out of a purely kind of materialist worldview. C.S. Lewis, who was a materialist until very late in life, says this, 
the Christian and the materialist hold different beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right. The one who is wrong will act in a way which simply doesn't fit the real universe. Consequently, with the best will in the world, he will be helping his fellow creatures to their destruction. So the question is, what are you helping your fellow creatures towards? Christian, are you helping your fellow creatures toward the kind of unconditional love, sacrifice, and generosity that Jesus teaches and we claim to believe? And for those of you who are an atheist or agnostic, materialist, what are you helping your fellow creatures towards? Your worldview can't take into account good and evil, beauty or truth or meaning. It can't define human value, rights, or dignity. It can't make coherent and consistent arguments for the most basic and universally held ideals. Nor can it make real emotional sense of the best things about humanity like personal sacrifice and generosity. We all believe things we cannot prove. The question isn't, do you believe? The question is, where does your belief lead? What I see in Jesus Christ is a man who embodied everything that most of us would agree are our highest ideals. He loved indiscriminately. He sacrificed unconditionally. He honored the dishonored. He included the rejected. He taught people to love and sacrifice for one another as an expression of our shared dignity. And then he sacrificed his own life to save his enemies from their self-imposed fates. Even if you don't believe the miracles or the resurrection, even if you don't believe that Jesus' death accomplished anything, isn't his life and message enough to warrant serious consideration? Number two, everyone hopes. John chapter 20, starting in verse 11, says, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. This is after John and Peter had left to go back to the disciples. Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin's book, Confronting Christianity, begins with this illustration. In 1971, Beatles star John Lennon had a dream. Closing his eyes to the atheist regimes of his day, he dreamed of a brotherhood of man with no heaven, no hell, no countries, no possessions, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion to. This dream persists. 
imagine was sung reverentially at the opening ceremony of the 2018 Winter Olympics in South Korea. Despite prescribing an anti-religious pill swallowed by only a tiny fraction of the world, it is seen as an anthem of unity across ideological differences. Eight years before Imagine was released, another prophet shared another dream. He dreamed that one day in Alabama, little black boys and black girls would be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. But in the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's vision, peace and brotherhood spread not from the loss of faith, but from its fulfillment. King dreamed that, quote, one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. Quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 4. We all have a dream of what the future might hold. We have some preferred vision of where our life is going to go or maybe even where the whole world is going to go. And probably our dreams are not that wildly different. The difference is what we believe will get us there. John Lennon placed in his hope in some combination of communism and atheism. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. placed his hope in the redemptive power of Jesus Christ. The question is, who was right? After Peter and John had left, Mary was left there sobbing, inconsolable, sobbing so hard and so distressed that she didn't even recognize that the two guys in the tombs were angels and didn't recognize Jesus, thought he was a gardener, right? And, and, and you, can, you can imagine why, right? I mean, Mary has kind of a remarkable story. Jesus came upon her in her little small town of Magdala, uh, aside the Sea of Galilee. And she was possessed by demons, which would have made her a social outcast. And it's possible, and it's not entirely clear, but it's possible that she came from a very wealthy and powerful family, which would have made her demon possession an even bigger deal, a, a disgrace to her family. And Jesus healed her. Jesus redeemed her. Jesus gave her a new family and a new purpose and a new lease on life. And she then followed him for the rest of his ministry. It's Mary Magdalene who is at the foot of the cross with Jesus' mother and John the Baptist. It's Mary Magdalene who is there when Jesus is buried following the men who took his body to the tomb. And it's Mary Magdalene who is there early in the morning, first thing while it's still dark at the tomb before any of the other disciples were there. You see, she had recognized in Jesus a means for the hope that she had. She recognized in Jesus that he held the two things that every savior needs to have, and it is love and power. The love, the concern to actually desire to bring about the good of the people and the power to get it done. See, love without power is mere sentiment. We can, we can love someone all we want and desire a better future for them, but if we don't have the power to bring it about, bring it about it's worthless. And power without love is terrifying. It's the beginning of every uh, authoritarian regime. But what she saw in Jesus was both the will to love, to the desire to see her good, and the power to bring it back. Our hope, Christian hope, lies in the one whose death went down, all the way down to the most intimate and 
insignificant detail of life, and then all the way back up to the most powerful and majestic victory. C.S. Lewis in his book, Miracles, says this, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still to recapitulate in the womb, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole world with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanishing, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, and then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing he went down to recover. That dripping, precious thing he went down to recover is us. It's you. Jesus is the one that Mary believes can bring about the future she hopes for. And he's the same one that Dr. King believed could bring about the future he envisioned. He's the one Christians believe has not only the love, that undying, undeterrable love, but also the power to make hope into truth, possibility into actuality. So who or what do you hope in? What have you placed your hope in to see the future that you desire come about? What do you believe has both the love and the power to bring about the future you long for? Does that thing or person or idea love you enough to care about bringing it about? And does it have the power to shape the future? Jesus loves you enough to care about your future and has demonstrated the power to bring about the future that you need. Last. John 20, verses 19 through 29. says, On the evening of that same day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. 
Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I love this story because so many of us can relate to Thomas. So many of us have said something like, I will never believe until I can see it, until I can hear it, until I can touch it, until I can feel it. It's got to be real or I will never believe. Now, let's set aside for a moment the fact that there are literally hundreds of things in your life that you believe even though you can't prove them and you haven't seen them. That you take somebody else's testimony uh, as truth and run with it. Let's let's set that aside for a moment. I want us to see two things here in Jesus' response. In verse 27, Jesus answers Thomas's doubts. Thomas has doubts and Jesus goes, okay, here, touch my hands, touch my side. Here, let let me answer your questions. Let Let me solve your doubts for you. Jesus isn't afraid of your doubts. He has answers for your doubts. He would never tell you don't doubt. He would actually encourage you to doubt harder doubt deeper, doubt more fully. Don't stop at some surface kind of problem, but actually dig in and find answers and make sure that your doubts are real. The invitation is not to stop doubting or to kind of solve with some distraction or platitude, but to doubt all the way in and all the way down. Second, in verse 29, Jesus says that the need to have concrete facts to support everything you believe and have it all lined up in neat rows so that it all comes together in a perfectly coordinated little worldview overestimates your ability to think and understand. Okay, maybe he didn't say that exactly. That's my paraphrase, but that's the big idea, right? In verse 29, he says, you, you believe because you've seen, but it's actually better if you believe without seeing. Now, why would that be the case? Because the reality is, you will never make sense of the world. You won't. And and when we can acknowledge that, we acknowledge the fact that we're humans and we have limitations. And in fact, it's likely that you're not even the smartest human, right? And so none of us are going to be able to categorize everything in the world into neat little pockets and neat little rows so that everything makes perfect sense. And if we live our lives so that until everything is in that perfect row, we will not take any steps, then you will be paralyzed. So Jesus' invitation is not to believe blindly. Jesus' invitation is not to believe when everything around you says to not believe. He's saying, listen, I I want you to take in everything. Here's the thing. I have doubts. I have doubts all the time. I I read things in the Bible or things happen in my life and it make me question. It make me wonder. It make me kind of doubt at the whole thing. But here's what I do. I press in. I lean in. I make sure I understand everything that's causing me to doubt. I try to learn everything that there is to know and try to understand what's actually happening and what's not happening. And then I try really hard to see it in view of the whole. So here's an illustration that might help. So if my wife, Emily, were ever accused of a crime, let's say a really bad one like murder or something, and she was arrested for murder, I would be the first, like every husband in every movie, to go, no, you you don't know her like I know her. She would never do this sort of thing. 
because that that one moment that one thing that one that one event that doesn't make sense doesn't blow up everything else i do know about her and so when i read something about jesus or read something about god in the scriptures or something happens in my life that doesn't make sense to me i I try to take a step back and see it in light of the whole and to recognize listen it's not all going to make sense to me all the time But you know what? I know that God is good and I know that God loves me and I know that Christ died for me and I know that Christ was raised for me and I know that there are going to be things I don't always understand. Jesus says, I'll answer your questions if you really ask them and really seek answers, but also be prepared that you aren't going to know everything. And that's the moment when you really have to believe. Okay, lastly, verse 30. John sums all this stuff up saying this. Now, Jesus did many other things, many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. This is John saying, you got to believe me. I was there. I saw it. I walked with him for three years. I know this guy better than anybody else. And I'm telling you, I will stake my life on the fact that this guy is the son of God. And that if you believe in him and orient your life around that truth, that you can have life in his name. He's he's begging us to take his word for it, to take his testimony. And I'll say it too. I've seen it. I've experienced it. I know it to be true. Jesus really does bring life. I've seen it in hundreds and hundreds of people throughout my ministry life, throughout my family and friends. I have seen Jesus at work giving life where there was only death. So all of us are in different places today. Some of us have believed for most of our lives and feel encouraged by the truth of the resurrection. Some of us have wavered on the edge of belief and disbelief and are wrestling this morning. Some firmly disbelieve, but perhaps wish this could all be true, even though it definitely isn't. But maybe you wish it could be true. It doesn't matter who you are or where you're at today. The invitation is the same. The invitation is to believe. The invitation is to take John's word for it, to take my word for it, to take your friend's word for it, your family member's word for it, those who have experienced the life of Jesus, that resurrection life, that, that the love that caused him to go to the cross to be sacrificed for you, the power that allowed him to overcome Satan's sin and death. The invitation is to believe. So this morning, here's my ask pray. We're going to have a minute here in just a moment for you to pray. What what do you have to lose? To simply go to God and ask him for faith. Ask him to help you believe. He wants you to believe and he will give you faith to believe. So we're going to pray and, and, and we're going to create space for you to respond. And I want you to do just that to just pray out of whatever the, the, the honest truth of what's going on in your heart. Even if that is you believing with all of your might that you're just talking to an empty room, that's okay. Nobody's gonna think you're crazy. Talk to the empty room because I believe God's listening. 
God is there next to you, calling you to himself, begging you to believe this morning. So let's pray together. Jesus, thank you that you lived, that you died, and that you were raised again. Jesus, we put our hope in you. We, we believe in you. We, we have, we, you make the best sense of everything in our lives. That we, we believe that you are the greatest hope that we have for the future we long for. That you have that perfect combination of love and power together. That you love us enough to want that best future and you have the power to bring it about. God, that you are strong enough and big enough to allow us to doubt towards you, doubt into you, to ask you our questions, to bring to you our concerns, and that you will respond. So Lord, I pray that this morning that you would give us faith, give all of us faith, give us the faith to believe more and more fully in you and what you have done for us and in our world. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the podcast for Icon Church. For more information, go to iconchurch.org.